0: This is Decoding Healthcare. I'm Kevin Ban, And I'm John Fox. And through the magic of radio, we've just pulled into Unity Farm Sanctuary in Sherburne, Mass. Got
1: Nice to meet you. There will be lots of sounds. John and Kathy Halamka greet us, surrounded by an arc's worth of animals, and proceed to show us around the place. There's a lot to show.
2: You can see there are 11 turkeys, there's ducks and geese and guinea fowl,
1: 10 horses, donkeys, cows,
2: goats, five streams, three ponds, 11 bridges, three tree houses.
1: Uh, I, I built all this stuff. This seems like the most organized, neat farm I think I've ever been You know,
2: come on, I'm an engineer,
1: you know.
0: <laughs> and in addition to being an engineer, an IT guy, and a farmer, John's primary vocation comes to the forefront as he introduces us to one of his horses.
2: And so Grace has irritable bowel, and uh, so every animal has a care plan as you might guess. Yeah. And yep,
0: also
1: has he's also a doctor.
0: Don't worry, you're in the right place. This is not a DIY farming podcast. <laughs> not yet anyway. Nope, Dr. John Halamka is Chief Information Officer of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He's the Dean for Technology at Harvard Medical School. He's a practicing emergency physician, author, and prolific blogger. And in his free time, he applies his training to barnyard creatures, great and small.
2: As you know, emergency medicine yes. and
0: veterinary care, are pretty much the same stuff. Uh,
2: not much different. Not really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I do everything within the scope of my license.
1: As an industry leader and innovator on the role of data and technology in care coordination and population health, John can even point out parallels to his work at Unity Farm, specifically when we arrive at the llama stables.
2: And uh, here you have 14 camelids, the males on this side, the females on that side. And why are they separated from a fence? Well, it turns out that camelids, llamas and
0: alpacas, ovulate on demand. A date equals a pregnancy. So essentially you've got the males and the females siloed, not unlike healthcare IT. But you actually said that there is a connection or there is something about llamas that that reminds you of interoperability.
2: Well, I mean, certainly all their behavior is entirely standardized, and that is people say, Oh, you know, llamas spit. Well, actually, it's just the females that spit at the males saying, Go away, I don't want you. So, you know, everything about their care is standardized, everything about their behavior is standardized,
0: they're very predictable.
2: So, hey, if we could do that in healthcare, just think how much better data liquidity we'd have.
0: And as I promised you in episode one, there you have it the elusive connection between llamas and interoperability. But that was just the start of a wide-ranging interview in John's study, out of earshot from the cacophony of bleats and squawks and snorts from outside. We talked about data, artificial intelligence, lessons from South Africa, and the true potential for open networks. But we started by asking him why, after endless acronym-laden government
1: commissions and pledges and vendor claims, it's still so hard to access and share basic patient data. Let's have a listen.
2: So I was asked the other day by a government official, how come we don't have the interoperability we all want? I said, well, first, you have to be slightly careful in defining what it is the interoperability we want, because over the last decade, we actually have done some pretty remarkable things. So if you look at public health, things like immunizations or portable labs, syndromic surveillance, those are actually reported with a high degree of regularity from hospitals and doctors. but." the typical use case you hear is, oh, I broke my leg while on vacation and the doctor couldn't get at my records. If that's your definition of interoperability, we have not done a good job. Well, how does a doctor in Florida get the electronic addresses of all the doctors in Massachusetts? We don't have any kind of national directory of electronic endpoints. In Massachusetts, we have a set of laws and those laws are generally friendly to interoperability, and we've got some consent laws that are opt-out, and we've got certain kinds of data we collect, and gee, the state feels okay about collecting the data. But then there's New Hampshire. You'd think in the live free or die state it would be easy. But can you collect public health data in the state of New Hampshire? No! It's actually illegal for a government entity to hold your data because that's too much government in your face. What's required in one state is illegal in another state. Problem two, how do I even know who you are? So Kevin, well, your name's pretty straightforward, but maybe it's misspelled or maybe there are people in the country that have your name. We don't have a nationwide patient matching strategy. You know, most countries in the world have a national healthcare identifier and we don't even have a strategy. The biggest one is economic incentive. If a two-doctor practice in Texas says, I want a Beth Israel Deaconess data feed, I have 200 projects in my IT agenda. Getting to the two-doctor practice in Texas, it's not that I'm blocking. It's just, it's not a priority. It's not, I'm not incented to do it. Now, on the other hand, if you said, oh, doctors won't be paid until their data goes to the patient or to the next provider of care. In two weeks, we'll have interoperability to a much greater extent than we have now. So you just don't have quite that incentive. Do you see us getting there? Well, I do. And in an era where we're paid for outcomes and quality, it's an existential necessity to share data. Let's imagine it was 10 years ago, and oh, we've got competition between partners, healthcare, and Beth Israel Deaconess, and the amount of data that went between the two 10 years ago was not so much. Whereas today, we actually send to each other summaries and ADT transactions of who's registering for what care where because we're all in risk contracts and we can't survive unless we share data. So we'll get there.
0: So previously, because of the payment model, a fee-for-service model, there was full silo, no way I'm sharing my data. And the moment you go to value-based care where you're collectively responsible for outcomes, you're seeing that change the way people are behaving. Right, and the only qualification is I'm not sure 10 years ago people
2: woke up every morning and said how can I stop sending you data it was that there was no incentive to do
0: it so it just wasn't on the priority no, no no that's the point exactly yeah actually, right the payment model changed right. so you kind of follow the money inside so
2: some would say in a fee-for-service world people built silos and they guarded those silos and they were really really volitionally blocking the data Well, maybe some places. But here, it wasn't that we were volitional. It's just that we just didn't get to it. Whereas today, now we have every incentive to get
1: to it, so we did. So, yes. So, another trend we're seeing is care moving out of the hospital. Zeke Emanuel just recently wrote a piece in the New York Times about this. I would imagine that that is also going to precipitate a need for interoperability at a new level.
2: Right. And so... The kinds of care models we all want are quite different than they used to be. And let me just give you a couple of quick personal examples. So it was about five years ago that my father-in-law was sitting at the dining table with my wife and looked at her and said, monkey brass tack carpet. And she said, what? Monkey brass tack carpet! And the, well, thing, clear the, first <laughs> yeah, the things that were coming out of his mouth were not the things that were in his brain. Right. So she did what every person would do was call me, say, how do I triage this issue? To nine one one. And do I go primary care or specialty? Do I go 911? Do I drive? Where do I go? What do I do? And I said, here, he's having a stroke in Broca's area. The issue is not getting him to an academic medical center downtown staffed with Harvard professors. The issue is find a CT scanner. Right. Where's the nearest CT scanner? And it turns out, just a few miles away at Needham, there is a CT scanner. And do they have full-time neurology in the ER? No. Do they have full- Telemedicine if I- Exactly. So what we did is we got them to the CT. T scanner, which then got him an imaging study, which then immediately was transferred to a Harvard professor via telemedicine at the bedside to review the patient, review the CT, make the intervention, give TPA, 24 hours later he's discharged home, he's totally fine. And so this is the sort of point is that we now are thinking of networks of data exchange and consultation where the doctor and the patient and the equipment. Very different kinds of models, ambulatory surgery, home-based care, home-based telemetry. That's the future of lower cost and higher quality. So so let me just... Let's see if Alexa is is awake today. Alexa.
0: Buy Pampers. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I I couldn't help myself. We'll start over again. (laughs) Uh,
2: Alexa. Ask BIDMC, who's on my care team?
0: Your care team includes Dr. Oliver Quinn, Nurse Hannah Chen, and Nurse Steve Thompson.
2: Alexa, ask BIDMC, what's my care plan for today?
0: Your care plan for today includes, at 8 a.m., a blood test to measure glucose level and blood count, at 1.30 p.m., an x-ray. At 4.45 p.m., your doctor will be checking in.
2: Alexa, ask, locate, where is patient Charlie Cooper?
0: Patient Charlie Cooper is currently in the radiology waiting room on the third floor of the Rosenberg building.
2: So we've actually built 30 live Alexa skills, all interfaced
0: to the EHR using fire-based APIs. It's all done. Can you imagine oh, wow. that sort of making its way into the hospital so a patient, um, or why in the hospital, I'm already showing my bias, is that the type of thing that we could imagine in the near future patients will be doing on a daily basis? And we really believe that
2: ambient listening, whether it's Alexa or Siri or Google Home or whatever, is the the interface of the future for both patients and providers. And so you can imagine a patient saying, schedule a cardiology appointment for me next week. And instead of sitting on phone, fax, email, smoke signals, and Morse code, which is how we make our appointments today, Alexa just says, oh, well, we have two availabilities. There's a Needham availability. Oh, there's also at the Lexington Clinic. Which would you like? So,
0: But I remember we had this conversation at BIDMC a few years ago, and you're talking about the technology to make that possible. Right. Will the physicians be willing to do that? Well, that's a more interesting question. And
2: again, I'm sure other organizations have this too, but my experience is doctors have three schedules. They have the public schedule, the secret schedule, and the super secret schedule. Uh, And lest you laugh, uh, I see an ophthalmologist because I have glaucoma. And I go to the front desk and I say, when is the next available appointment? Six months from now. And then I call the doctor and he says, oh, I actually keep a little black paper book in my chest pocket. Um, How about Tuesday at eight? (laughs) And so it's very challenging to automate a paper-based black book in a pocket somewhere. (laughs) So There had to be, I mean, if we're gonna do this and make it as friendly as we want it to be, there has to be a standardization of the
1: schedules, an open access model. It seems like doctors are afraid of more encroachment on their time. They've already got a lot of burden, administration, but what you're saying is the opposite. If they actually embrace the technology, actually open up their schedule, they would be more efficient. Is that right? Well, we
2: are at a time where everyone recognizes the electronic health record is not fit for purpose, and that is its usability is poor. Doctors spend half their day typing and emergency physicians, 44% of their shift is spent in data entry. So I think our challenge is, is how do we deploy these tools to make it friendly for the patient and friendly for the doctor and reducing burden for everyone? So sure, I mean, we can do these things for the patient, but we also have to have automated documentation methods where Alexa or something like it listens to the doctor and the patient talking to each other and then fills out the chart, right? Why not? Uh, and whether that's just voice recognition, NLP, machine learning, whatever, we get to the point where the burden is radically reduced. Because it's the right application of technologies that save time and improve accuracy
0: that's going to make the doctors less burdened. You know, we talk a lot about burnout. We talk about that in the hospital all the time because we're concerned that not only might we have enough people going into medicine, but the people in it are burning out. Uh, We talk about it at Athena because we feel like technology ought to in some ways, not serve as a headwind, but a tailwind. What are the types of things that you see coming down the road where we get away from this episodic tool, really that was meant to drop a bill, towards something that's actually going to facilitate take care? What does that look like in the near term, five years from now, and then after that?
2: I'll, I'll just tell you the data we're gathering from doctors today, much of it is just utterly useless. And what do I mean by this? Well, okay, let's, let's see if we can find an injury on my hand somewhere. Okay, so, you know, that's a pig bite, which is a W62.E4. Yes, there is an ICD-10. Male pig yeah, or female Yeah, well, exactly. So I actually asked my primary caregiver, I said, see, that, It's a pig bite. You can put an ICD-10 code for that. I said, it's an abrasion. I won't even in the chart code it as animal-related, let alone the species. So here we've imposed this burden on doctors that's producing just garbage, So shouldn't we instead say this? A doctor will have a conversation with a patient. That data will be recorded. And again, natural language processing, machine learning. And then there will be SNOMED codes automatically inserted around the conversation to say, oh, what they talked about was, and here's this formal code of a pig bite, but it's not a doctor doing it. And by the way, there's no billing because now in a value-based purchasing world, it's all risk-based. And so you sure need to document the kinds of care that were given and be able to do data analysis for research and utilization review or whatever, but it has nothing to do with dropping a bill. And so then we start getting a corpus of useful searchable data because the machines have encoded the structured metadata around the conversation we had. And that's the way the future of medicine should look.
0: There's a tendency to talk about AI and really focus on the moonshot and what's the you know, the big shiny object. But a lot of where AI helps is in real basic blocking and tackling meat and potatoes type of stuff. What's your take on AI? Where's it going? What can we expect? So I completely agree with you.
2: Are we going to see your doctor replaced by some machine learning application in the near future? No. What we're going to see is some nuts and bolts kinds of things that are improved. Currently, Beth Israel Deaconess has 12 live machine learning applications. And what do they do? Well, it turns out that we're totally digital. We get 18 inches of paper every day from the outside world. And what used to happen, four people would read 18 inches of paper. So we fed 1,200 pieces of paper into a machine learning application. And at the end, we got to 99.9% positive predictive value on camp forms, consents, labs, and other things. So suddenly we got to the point where 18 inches of paper, oh, a human reviews 12 pieces of paper every day and the machine categorizes all the rest. Inserting it into the right record with the right metadata. Works today in production. Or how about another one? So you're going to have an appendectomy. How much time in the OR do we give? Two hours. But wait, you're a young, healthy person with no comorbidities. Thank you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I feel good about
2: that. Yeah. Why, Why would we give you two hours? In fact, if you put a machine learning algorithm looking at... Millions of surgeries done before you. We could say, oh, for a person of your age with your procedure, with this surgeon who's done 10,000 appendectomies, you need 30 minutes. So we did this exercise. We can eliminate the wasted time in our ORs, actually increasing capacity 30 percent. Right? This is the most valuable real estate in a hospital, and you're wasting 30 percent. So this is prosaic, right? This isn't the doctor being replaced. It's these workflows that can be automated with machine learning much better than we do
1: today. And how do the surgeons respond to that? Do they see that as a net positive for them, or do they see it as threatening their judgment or their traditional role in any way? So why do surgeons love this idea? So you say, oh...
2: I really want to do this operation on Friday, but I'm actually going to have to come in on Saturday because there's no time available on Friday. Well, suddenly 30% of the schedule is open. So not only did we do the machine learning thing, but then we built a mobile app that is in effect open table for OR time. I'd like an appendectomy tomorrow at 7.30, table for two. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just scheduled for you. And so every change that's going on delay cancellation
0: open slots all available on your phone which was previously done by a nurse sitting somewhere now is done by ai so it's so much more efficient effective and driving better outcomes essentially and it's all self-service on your phone
2: right the doctor can just plug in what they want it just happens so these are the sorts of things machine learning will do for us and sure there's going to be augmented human performance in the area of image processing and recognition. Uh, the other day I was talking to one of our uh, very, very uh, well-trained radiologists. I said, do you know when I started in radiology, an average MRI had 20 images? This morning I had one with 330 images. Three millimeter cuts with axial and sagittal reconstructions. Like, no human can look at 330 images with any degree of sanity. So if a machine learning application said, well, of the 330, here are the 20 key images, then that'd be great. That's the kind of thing we'll see.
1: Well, it seems like you're going to earn the trust of physicians by taking on that burden, by earning your way into perhaps more intrusive areas where in some future state you're augmenting judgment and clinical decision making. But you start with simple stuff that takes on burden, delivers some value to the physician and earns their trust. And so this is all about practicing at the top of your license, right? So when I was a medical
2: student in 1984, right, um, all you did was see patients. (laughs) patients. <laughs> and I went, occasionally you wrote some things in the chart. There was no meaningful use. There was no TEFCA. There was no QPP and IQR and all of the 300,000 pages of regulations that have happened since I was a medical student. And now you look at clinicians and they say, oh, anything you can do to reduce my burden is such a benefit. And so whether it's machine learning applications or voice recognition applications or some things that we're working on just to make clinical documentation easier using templates and macros and all of these other augmentations they
0: love. John, I just noticed that you have the certificate on the wall and you are the International Healthcare Innovation Professor of Emergency Medicine at Harvard. What does that mean? What What are you seeing internationally?
2: So what this means is that although I've spent the last 15 years working in the United States trying to do standards and interoperability policy, much of my work today is international. And so it's China, New Zealand, Scotland and a fair amount of work in Africa. The Gates Foundation would like to unify the healthcare data of Africa, specifically around HIV, malaria and TB. A lot of interesting challenges. Um, Athena has a distributed network of data centers connected with high-speed networks. If you're in South Africa, bandwidth is just not available. You have cell phones. Robust distributed data centers are not available. So to unify the HIV data, we had a few simple ideas. Problem with South Africa, lots of folks come and go across the borders which aren't tightly controlled with, uh, you've got Zimbabwe and you've got Lesotho and Botswana. So you can't really use name, gender, date of birth. You can't really use identity cards. So what are we using? We're using iris scans. And we built these very simple $100 devices you can deploy in the field that take your iris scan and over a GSM cell phone, send a request to a distributed blockchain layer to figure out where your records are and then delivers them to a GSM cell phone printer in the field. So literally, scan your irises and one second later, here's the data about your HIV care the doctor needs to know now. And what's fascinating about this is it works really well. It's really inexpensive. It doesn't require a huge IT lift or new infrastructure. And you wonder, if you can make it work in Soweto, can you make it work in Watertown? Uh, Some
1: interesting lessons learned from outside the US. So it seems like a lot of people who would hear about iris scans, it sounds a little Um, 1984-ish. Do you see this happening in the U.S. anytime soon?
2: Well, so interesting things we thought through in doing this. We're actually not storing the iris scan itself. We're storing certain key points or features so that, in effect, we're verifying your identity. But we don't have the ability to replay your identity, right? This is not some sort of sci-fi film where we're going up to a scanner and we're faking we're you. (laughs) It's you showed up and now can you prove who that person is who showed up? So it really doesn't have any sort of sci-fi angle to it. And even if it's lost or stolen, your privacy isn't really compromised. because It's just a verification tool. So there's that. And also the culture in South Africa seems to be that this is such an important public health issue. People are okay with it. We actually have done lots of focus groups. And they actually think that getting safe, coordinated, low-cost care is really
1: important. You've written and talked before about your wife Kathy's battles with cancer and her corresponding battles with health information barriers. Can you give an example of some of the challenges that she and and you as her caretaker in those situations faced and how those things should have transpired if data were actually flowing? So on the clinical side, she's Korean. She's 55,
2: was 50 at her diagnosis. Of course, the question we all had is, how do 50-year-old Asian women do with Taxol, Adriamycin, and cytoxin? And is there a New England Journal article that will tell you the answer to the question? Um, no. Are there electronic health records for thousands of women like her that could have said, these are the morbidities and mortalities, the side effects and the issues you'd be concerned about? Absolutely. But do we have in our EHR today a button that we can just click and say, go look at 10,000 patients like this and tell me what you found? No. So I ended up using some open source tools, i 2 b 2 at Harvard and its hospitals to answer this question. And that's great if you're the CIO of Harvard hospitals and you have access to millions of patients and know how to use the open source tools. But every patient should have the benefit of the data of the patients from the past informing the care of patients in the future. We ended up, by the way, reducing her chemotherapy doses by half based on what we learned. And she came out of that with CURE in remission now for five years with no side effects. So good. However, the story isn't so rosy when it comes to the financial side of things. So uh, a few months ago, her insurer, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, we love Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, said we're no longer going to fund your post chemotherapy treatment with Depo Lupron because one of our medical directors read an article published in 1990 that had a cohort of 13 Norwegian women and therefore we're going to deny payment. And I asked of course the questions to Harvard Pilgrim. Did you review her medical record? No. Did you review her protocol? No. Did you talk to anyone on the care team? No. Did you look at her care preferences? No. So what? You made a decision about her lifetime treatment post-cancer based on some paper written 27 years ago with 13 Nordic people. This is craziness. (laughs) And the way it should have worked is that whether it was Harvard Pilgrim or Blue Cross or Tufts or anybody, there should be a cloud-hosted decision support system that says, this is a patient with the following characteristics, the following protocols, the following history. What is the best practice? And then that is what we will fund. And no such thing exists at the
1: moment, but it needs to. It doesn't exist now, but it needs to. That one statement really captures the sentiment around interoperability,
0: current state, and where we need to push it. So what are your big takeaways, Kevin? I have never felt more like an underachiever than I did when I was talking to John Holanka. You're not exactly a slacker. Let's be honest. My my mom is in perfect agreement with you. (laughs) But more seriously, he's right. We're moving into this time where previously siloed information was what people wanted. It was competitive advantage. And now all of a sudden, it seems like hospital systems, providers, patients, people are really looking to communicate and share information. Right, and the move to
1: value is creating new incentives and urgency around sharing that data. There's new care models, telemedicine, ambulatory surgery, home health. And as John called it,
0: They need networks of data exchange. As patients, people, start to act like consumers, you see all sorts of innovation happening. I'm thinking about Apple now and all of the things that they're doing. We're doing some things with them as well. And in a world where there's kind of an app for everything, uh, now all of a sudden you can imagine that interoperability that could happen between the HRs and other sources of information. It's pretty exciting. All true,
1: but we do have some hurdles still in place. We need to have a patient identifier system so that we actually know that Kevin Band that walked into the hospital is the same Kevin Band that was in urgent care
0: the other day. And that's not it. You know, you also need it on the provider side. You know, we need a national provider directory so that when I'm working, I can coordinate and collaborate with the right providers out there for that particular patient.
1: And as an industry, we have to move beyond the notion of having this single comprehensive patient record that somehow unifies every instance of care. Care is happening everywhere, that's really clear, including between actual visits, which may be the most important place. We need a connected record that centers around the patient
0: not the hospital, not the EHR system. Right, and what I really love about talking to John Halamka is the innovation stories that he tells that are actually happening today. When he talks about machine learning and artificial intelligence that are kind of stripping away the scut work in the hospitals, talking about Alexa and Google really freeing up time so that doctors can be doctors. And as John reminded us so poignantly and
1: personally in speaking about his wife, Kathy, all of this technology investment will have failed
0: if it doesn't improve health outcomes and the experience for all of us. And that's exactly what we'll dive into next time on Decoding Healthcare as we look at how community networks are saving lives in a region that's long struggled with poverty and health disparities. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our producer is Nikki Zace. Our engineer, composer, and all-around Mike of all trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health. I'm Kevin Bann. And I'm John Fox.